0: Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Karen DeYoung. I write about national security for the Washington Post. And thank you all for being here. And I'm very pleased to be here. And we're really honored to have with us today former uh, Congressman Mike Rogers of Michigan to talk about national security priorities and challenges as we head into a new administration. Uh, I don't have to tell you, but I'll go through just the, the highlights of, of his uh, career. As you know, former U.S. Army officer and FBI special agent in the House, Congressman Rogers served as chairman of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, where he built a lasting legacy through his work on all aspects of national security policy, from cyber to counterterrorism to oversight of the broad intelligence community. Since he left Congress, Congressman Rogers has been a commentator on CNN. And a syndicated radio host, and he is a widely sought expert on any number of security issues. And he also, for a brief shining moment, led President elect Trump's national security transition team. So I don't want to let that become an elephant in the room. So, Congressman, I'd like to start by asking you to talk a little bit about it, if you will, how you came to that job, why you left it, and I don't really know how well you knew um, Mr. Trump beforehand, but what you learned through that process about his priorities and how he's likely to approach them.
1: Oh, look at the time. Did I, did I was, Oh, my gosh, How quickly this went by. Um, so two things. One thing I, I think Americans should know about uh, these transitions, that it started long before the campaigns came to a conclusion on November 8th. So, uh, in 2015, Congress uh, passed a law that basically set up uh, an operational status right after the primaries, so the Republicans (coughs) and Democrats would have transitions to begin what is really a monumental task, if you think about it. Uh, Over 4,000 appointments in 73 days. Uh, So, think about all the vetting and all the policy changes, all the policy review, all of the legal analysis that has to happen. So what happened back in June is uh, uh, Governor Christie called me and said, hey, would you mind heading up this national security portfolio, this is all kind of a volunteer operation, but we want to get ready for November 8th uh, for the Republican candidate should he win, of which obviously he did. And so we went through the entire process, and it is a very organized professional process. The Democrats did exactly the same thing one floor up, and you can imagine the elevator rides were pretty interesting. Uh, They were on the eighth floor, I think we were on the seventh floor, something like that. So in that process, our goal was to hit certain metrics to make sure that all policy review is done, short two-page kind of policy reviews, all of our longer policy reviews in each shop. the economic shop, the domestic policy shop, the national security shop. I had the national security shop. So we assembled people to try to hit those goals. And we didn't have a relationship with the campaign at all, really. A little bit, but not much. And what we would do is try to take statements. So when the when the president now elect was candidate Trump giving a statement on national security, we would take that speech or that statement and say, all right, how would we fit that in? If we were tasked as a part of an administration to try to accomplish the kinds of things he's talking about, what would it look like and how would we do it? Those are the kind of exercises we were going through to prepare for November 8th. So on November 8th, uh, as you can imagine, there's a merger and acquisition that the campaign now assumes control of the transition. Uh, and that was about the perfect time If people are going to move on. That was the right time. They wanted the national security portfolio up in uh, New York uh made a lot of sense to me. We had hit all our numbers, and we handed them binders full of good work, uh, including names, and we had assembled lawyer teams to do the vetting of individuals to make sure that they could pass the standard uh, to become nominated for the for the role. So at that point, I shifted it off, and uh, as my wife said, my, my hobby and volunteer time was diminished greatly. So she was pretty happy about that.
0: <laughs> well, I want to get to the, <clears throat> the last part of that question, which is what did you learn about priorities and, and decision-making, looking ahead to the new yeah, administration. Well, first of all,
1: it's the greatest academic exercise <laughs> I, thought, I think I've ever been through in my life. I had never done anything quite like that. Uh, where again, you're thinking the largest organization in the world and how complex it is to have a complete stop to standstill kind of an operation. We had two very different presidents, one handing off and one accepting. Imagine the task in trying to change that into the direction of the president. It's just a huge concept. It's hard when a president goes from party to party, let alone party to other party. I mean, it's just a huge, huge monumental task. Uh, And the priorities are, are the, the, the general priorities in the economy are the same. It's the principles of which you apply to solve those problems, in many cases, are very, 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 very different. And so how would you apply these different principles to solve the same kinds of problems that both parties look at? And that really was the fundamental difference on the priorities. And again, I didn't see the economic side or the domestic policy side. That wasn't my gig. Uh, I looked at the national security posting and how we would either advise the president-elect to change, and they could either take all or little or none of the uh, recommendations that we put together over those six months or so.
0: Do you, you've, you've talked about how uh, a new administration <clears throat> excuse me, has to hit the ground running. And, as and also as you can how there's, you know, there's a danger in a sort of vacuum in the chain of command or a, a breach in the, in the chain of command. We've got lots of issues um, that are moving very quickly now. Um, as we watch the president-elect assemble his team of advisors, um, before, we, before we get to any specific appointments, he said several times that he's his own best advisor. Um, the Once he was elected, he was offered intelligence briefings every day, the, the PDB, and I think recent reports that I've read are that he's only actually done it three times since he was elected. Um, to what extent do you think this talk about trusting one's own instincts and um, really being somewhat dismissive of the intelligence community uh, is something that that Mr. Trump will be able to stick with? Is it advisable? Do you think the system itself just ensures that that's not really what happens?
1: The, uh, the national security <clears throat> apparatus in the United States is huge. It is just massive. Uh, when I was chairman, the, the 17 intelligence agencies' uh, unclassified budget was about $75 billion a year. That's just the intelligence collection posture of the United States. Now, that happens to be both civilian and military uh, intelligence collection operations. It's huge. I mean, that's just a huge, but that's bigger than most countries. Uh, and we spent a lot of money on a lot of different uh, ways to try to collect information to give to policymakers to make good decisions. Uh, and in some cases, take care of, of bad actors uh, around the world. So, given that, uh, the team that he put together, if you noticed, he announced his national security team pretty quickly. So I think he had a good understanding that that was something. Pardon? Parts of it. Well, important parts of it. The National Security Advisor, I argue, is probably the most central position. And that has to be somebody that has a strong relationship with the president. You're basically joined at the hip uh, most days with your National Security Advisor because that's the collection point of all of this mammoth information flowing into the White House. So as National Security Advisor, as CIA Director, I think they're still in conversations about the DNI. And I think they might even look at what they want the DNI to do. It may may change a little bit in the next administration. Um, I don't know that for sure. And again, I'm not speaking for the transition or the president-elect. We need to make that very clear. Um, And so I do think that that part of it starts to consume how you make decisions. It is so huge, so monumental. You need a team around you that is filtering this information uh, as much as uh, the president himself is gonna filter this information. I think that's already starting to happen. I can see that starting to develop. And there's another piece of this that kind of goes missing. They're called landing teams. These are the folks that will show up at the agencies, and they started doing that uh, it's my understanding about last week. So these are teams that, that we had recommended, they had changed some of the names and vetted some of the names, and you have these teams that will go in to the Defense Department, to the State Department, uh, and all of the agencies across the government and start getting ready for that transition, including making sure that the information flow, and there's an understanding of what the threat matrix is so that on January 21st, and really, if you think about it, if somebody just throws the keys on your desk, good luck, Mr. President, that's the way it happens. Uh, so all of this is designed to try to iron that out a little bit so that you have some continuity across these agencies. I think that all of that is happening now. You don't see it. It's not nearly as fun as watching the parade of people at Trump Tower, right? That's a lot more exciting to watch on the news. This is the real work of getting ready and prepping to be president of the United States. All that work, I can tell you, is happening now.
0: I'll just, I'll just put in a, a plug for, for the watching on the news. That's, that's the only window we have is yep. to watch who's coming and going, and I agree with you, it's kind of a circus yeah. sometimes and perhaps doesn't, doesn't but it's reflect nice the seriousness serious of purpose. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you talked about um, the importance of the National Security Advisor having a close relationship with the president. Um, if you look at somebody like Mike Flynn, very senior, respected military intelligence officer, ran into some problems as head of DIA, He's been extremely outspoken since his retirement. Um, he said that Islam is a malignant cancer, that it's a political ideology rather than a religion. Uh, a lot of people in the intelligence community have objected to that, and even some people in Congress have not been that happy with him. You look at Mike Pompeo, a congressman who's been, been uh, named head of the, of the CIA. Obviously, he was on the Intelligence Committee under you, um, He was also, excuse me, a member of the Select Committee on Benghazi, where he was very outspoken and uh, was co-author of a a report that took exception not only to the conclusions of the the Benghazi Select Committee, but also to the Intelligence Committee uh, report that you you headed. Um, In addition to to General Flynn, um, there have been mentions, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, military officers. And, and I think Trump said in his interview with uh, the New York Times the other day that he thought it was time for a general to head the uh, Defense Department. It's, it's not the first time that um, military, retired military officers have, have been appointed to, to cabinet level positions, but um, I think it's the first time we've had so many of them up for it at, at, at one time. Um, as you look at the, at the concerns that have been expressed Both in Congress and in the intelligence community, Um, I wonder if you can sort of interpret these appointments so far. Um, Are we headed for some sort of clash between them? Um, Does this all tend to work out in the end as people rise to the occasion and and see uh, kind of become less political uh, as as they're faced with. With issues and how, how do you see this? You yeah. you look at at, at Senator McCain has been very critical of some of the things that uh, that not only President Trump but other members of his of his um, transition team have have said.
1: I, I think the weight of the responsibility of these jobs begins to take over the day you walk through the front door. Um, these are big, serious, high-consequence jobs. Um, and I think that matters that you have people who have had a measure of success in their lives to be able to handle what's coming at them. And I do think that changes people. I don't think that in a bad way. I don't think they change their principles. I don't, think, I don't believe any of that. I just think that the nature of the work itself fundamentally changes the focus. Remember, if you're in the political arena, you're gonna talk about political arena things that either highlight your philosophy as opposed to someone else or not. When you're in a national security position, that's irrelevant. George Schultz, I think, said it best, the former Secretary of State, uh, when someone asked him about why maybe his foreign policy is different uh, from his boss. Uh, and he said, well, that's funny. Uh, I don't have a foreign policy anymore. I have my boss's foreign policy. And I think you'll see a lot of that start to happen, right? Even, I don't care what, if, it's, if it's Romney or some other Secretary of State, they everyone wants to find the clash that happens right that's the exciting thing under the and any new administration you i think you'll find that these people understand uh that the secretary of state doesn't get to have foreign policy anymore they they implement the president's foreign policy uh they can advise and counsel the president and we would uh, encourage all of them to do that and they are doing that uh but they don't get to go out and do on their own that fight (coughs) happens in a room somewhere they'll wrestle it out uh and when the when the door opens they're moving out straightly to get whatever the U.S. position is uh, based on the president's guidance. I think all of that's happening. I, I really do. And I think, yes, it's, you, can take, you can parse a, a career's worth of language and find some pretty awful things, I'm sure, except for me, of course. <laughs> Boy, this, is, this crowd is you're good. This crowd over here, we've got to work on you all. Um, and so I, I just worry that you can't condemn these folks. You have to give them a the chance to do the jobs of which they were appointed. I think that's really important. If six fronts for now, you, just, well, you know, America decides that ain't working, I'll guarantee the president won't either. But Remember, Ronald Reagan did something interesting, too. He, he had basically three chiefs of staff. He had this kind of a weird arrangement when he got there. Um, and about three months into it, they all realized, you know what? It's not going to work. Um, and he adjusted just fine. And I think this, they're, they're going to experience the same kinds of changes, pushes, and pulls as they go into the administration. You'll find some things that you see today that won't be there for th- three months from now. I pa- passionately believe that. Uh, and you know, it'll be just this, this going through the process. You know, pretty easy to plan to be president. Uh, it's not easy to be president. You know, I think every president ever elected has said that. Uh, and so that's the process you're seeing happen. now. It's a maturation that I don't think is bad. It's just what it is. It is adapting to the weight of the national security threats that are facing the united states and i think those those kind of comments will be less less important in their lives than the work that they're going to about to embark on on january 21st
0: and the the assuming that some more military people end up in in the national security um, top tier that is should that be something to be concerned about
1: uh, I mean, I'm not, I would normally not give advice to have a general walk into the civilian job of Secretary of Defense. However, I think there are exceptions. And I'll tell you, I think General Mattis is an exception. If you've ever had the privilege to know him or get to know him, I, I don't think he has a TV in his house, but he has 10,000 books. And those are just the ones that he kept after he read. The guy is brilliant. He's a brilliant strategist. He's a brilliant tactician. And the guy is a fierce warrior. Uh, he understand, He's an internationalist. Uh, so some notion that you hire a general to go break things uh, is counterintuitive when you meet a guy like General Mattis. So the f- I think he is one of the few general officers that you could want to go assume that role. I, and I say that after talking to lots of general officers who I have high, uh, just a ton of respect for, who tell you, be careful, you don't want a general thinking at the head of the, the, the uh, Department of Defense. Not because they're bad, they just, they, you know, it takes a long time to grow a general. They have certain ideas and certain directions they think the, the country ought to go. So that's the only change. Uh, but when I saw General Mattis's name, uh, you know, I was encouraging that when I was there, that he should be considered for something. I think he is a brilliant national security asset to the United States, and we ought to use him where we can. If the president-elect thinks that's the job and Congress concurs, he's got to get a waiver, uh, I think that would be probably a good thing. And I wouldn't look at it as, this guy's ready to pull his saber and charge the hilt. That, if you don't... You might think that with some of his language when he's talking to Marines who are about to go to combat, uh, but when you talk to him about strategy and, and, uh, and global engagement, you'll have a very different conversation, and I think that's what people have been doing.
0: But isn't much. it less, less the idea that, oh, he's a general, he's a warrior, he's gonna take us into war, less that than sort of preserving the concept of having civilians in charge of the military?
1: Well, he's a civilian now. Um, he's not a military officer now. So he, you know, it's, he's been out, I, th- I want to say three or four years. I can't 2013. remember. 2013. 2013. So three years. Uh, be close to four years when he gets out. So he does qualify as a civilian. He didn't go from stars to secretary. Uh, he had some, some interim time out. And so, again, I wouldn't honestly, I would not recommend it often. I wouldn't say there's a lot of generals that could make the transition. I do think when I saw General Mattis' name, uh, and the encouraging conversation we had prior to November 8th about a, an officer like General Mattis, that I, th- I felt better about it. And again, I'm not somebody that would think this is normally a good idea. I felt good about him. I do think there are few officers that can make that change. Uh, and I think he's one of those officers that can do it.
0: Um, I want to go back to the question of, of Congress um, and how you think Congress is going to work with the new administration. Um, as, as I said before, there have been, some members have said some pretty harsh things about relations with Russia, about returning to the use of torture. Um, how, how is that relationship gonna work? A lot of members were not supporters of, uh, of Donald Trump.
1: True, um, but Mike Pence uh, is a very well-respected former member of Congress, and I have a feeling you will see the Vice President spend more time engaged with congressional liaison than probably most vice presidents in the past, uh, which I think is a good thing. Uh, there are some serious big agenda items. So when you when you get down to the narrow issues on a campaign, and remember, that's a campaign. Campaigns are, it's a full contact sport. Um, but when it's done, you pick up the other team, right, and move along and go on to the next uh, event. This is that next big event. I think members will tone down. I don't think, uh, listen, I think, President-elect is gonna go in and find out that he has a list of enhanced interrogation techniques that are available to him under the law uh, that are classified. Uh, my argument is smart people around him will explain why you use these sparingly, if ever at all, uh, and waterboarding isn't one of those, and the Congress passed a law that made waterboarding illegal. If you're going to do that, you have to change the law first before you tell somebody to do it. So you remember the hype of a campaign he thinks that the president's going to run in and mm-hmm. say, do something illegal. I just don't believe that. I think the council of the people that you put around you are going to give the next president options of which to choose. Um, and I can't imagine people talking about using that option. That's a very complicated, high political capital, low yield re- uh, result effort for what he would want to accomplish. So uh, I, I imagine that some pe- more people around him would give him that advice. And yes, they disagreed with him, but there is, you're never going to find a politician you agree with 100%. Uh, if you do, I suggest you marry that person. Um, and thankfully, now it doesn't matter. What, so you can do that just about everywhere now. This is good, right? It's 2016. Okay, now this section needs to step up. For God's sakes, people. So I know it's been a long day, but work with me on this. So I, I, I do think you're going to see a... T- people are going to, The tempers are going to calm down. Uh, and the effort that I think is possible for this administration on the economy and other things. I mean, there's a reason you're seeing the stock market go crazy, because they think he's going to get something done on this economic agenda that will help the economy. Fantastic. And I think you'll find that people start rallying around the things that are possible versus the things we disagree with. That's politics in my mind.
0: What about beyond torture, um, other things that have been subject to particularly identified with President Obama? And I look at the whole counterterrorism campaign and the, the kind of rules of the road that they laid out on the use of, of lethal force, um, drones, uh, and other things. These are all, all presidential um, directives, and um, which Donald Trump could come in, go, come in and just get rid of mm-hmm. tomorrow, or Good. January 20th. Um, what, some of them are pretty restrictive uh, in terms of collateral damage, in terms of international law, um, do you would you expect that the new administration would be would kind of welcome that kind of guidance as at least something they don't need to worry about immediately, or would you expect that there'll, there'll be some immediate movement on things like that, in, basically to comport with his. Uh, pledge to be much tougher on the Islamic State, be much tougher on counterterrorism in general.
1: Yeah, And, and a lot of that will be based, this, this new effort I think you'll see on ISIS is going to be more of a rules of engagement uh, instruction and debate and policy from formation than it is any big major move. You're not going to see the 101st Airborne Division parachuting into, into eastern Syria. It's not going to happen. Um, and there was no program that I saw from anywhere that would, would call for that. There are things that can change to, be, to allow uh, our special capability forces to leverage up uh, both other nations special capability forces as well as their conventional forces and I think you will see that dynamic change. I th- I'm sure there'll be a hearty and healthy debate about that and what it should look like but I think you're gonna see that activity that that many think and I happen to be in that camp that if you allow that activity to happen you'll have a much higher impact on the battlefield and a better disruptive action uh, in contact with the enemy. And I think if you do that, you can have some pretty good results quickly. And that's what they were talking about. And and you're talking about an an airstrike campaign that will go on until the the next president either turns it off, he will have to affirmatively turn that off. That is a program that is engaged in disruption of terrorist activities in the world. I argue it's one of the most effective and impactful campaigns ever waged against terrorism. Uh, so certainly if I were in that uh, sphere, I would argue why you need to do it and why you need to continue to do it to continue to disrupt uh, enemy activities that are planning uh, contact or uh, operations against the United States or our allies. And so I don't think you'll see a radical adjustment, but what you, you will see is I think a more effective use and a more responsible use. I don't know if we'll do it. I, this was not in the thing, anything I recommended I think it's wrong that Congress has not supported the fact that we have troops in contact with the enemy today uh, without congressional authorization. Uh, I think it will be, this is, my, my, uh, this is Mike Rogers' void of anything else. I think it's wrong. We just lost a soldier in Raq- uh, right outside of Raqqa, uh, actually a sailor. Uh, it's wrong that Congress has not authorized military force when we know the president is doing it and Congress is funding them doing it. I think it's wrong. I think it's candidly one of the weakest points of our national security strategy. I think it would be a very powerful thing if Congress came out of the chute and gave the president what President Obama asked for, candidly, was the authorization to use troops in combat in both uh, Iraq and Syria. It sends a very clear message to our adversaries, number one, and number two, I think it's lawful uh, to do that. And so it, that's my personal pet peeve. If you're going to have all of those adjustments, I hope can, Congress has the courage to stand up and make—it's a difficult vote, but it's a vote that has to happen if you're going to ask these young men and women to risk their lives for the United but States.
0: But how, how do you get over what the problem was in the past, that there was basically across the aisle very deep disagreements over what it should say and what kind of powers should be included? Trump, as far as I know, didn't say anything in the campaign yeah, about did. a new is, AUMF, me, Mike Rodgers, um, so how do you, would, is that something you would expect to come from Congress, that they would, I would hope so. there's get a, together and over? There's a band over... of
1: party fellows, uh, men and women in Congress, who believe this is the right thing. I think you'll find a lot of people who served in the military believe this is the right thing, who are now serving in Congress. Uh, there's a good, the new freshman class has, uh, has a pretty high percentage of, of folks who have served in the military. And you hope that they come to this conclusion. It's, it, it, just because it's hard doesn't mean they shouldn't do it. Uh, and we've got to start getting over that notion in, in the legislature here in Washington, D.C. So I do think you're going to see a call and some pressure to do it. Nobody wants to do it. It's, people, it's, it's an easy thing to demagogue. Oh, you're, you're calling for full-on war. It doesn't have to be any of that. But I do think it's wrong that we haven't authorized... Uh, that Congress, excuse me, has not authorized it. This was my... Pitch when I was in up until 2015, It's my pitch today. I just think it's wrong uh, that we're fighting this war hoping nobody notices. Uh, I think that's wrong, and I think we're going to have to get our act together. And if you want to make those changes, my argument would be Mr. President coming in, uh, that ought to be a part of your equation so that you, ha- you can do this in the full faith and credit of the United States of America. Right now, it's, it's your debate. Does the President really have the ability to deploy as long as he has, as much as he has? over the last two or three years? I don't know. Some lawyers say yes. Some lawyers say no. And as a former member of Congress, I think we need to be engaged in that decision. So maybe
0: it's a good idea. I mean, it would be a good recommendation for the president himself to come out early on and say, I want this. Be
1: the right, I think it would be the right thing to do. I mean, is it, does, it have, does it come with a whole bunch of political capital in a, a place where country is divided? You can imagine the the political firestorm that shortly follows that debate, um, which would be unfortunate, but you know it's gonna happen. So I imagine that's the calculus they'll go through. If if I can get these five things done, does that rise to the level, knowing that I have this legal authority that someone told me I had to do this? Uh, You can understand there's the the political conundrum which the next president will face.
0: so the, taking you back to your, your former life on the Intelligence Committee, the, the House just this week approved the intelligence budget um, and put out a statement, at least the chairman put out a statement, saying that one of the important things it does is enhances efforts against nation-state competitors, in particular by increasing scrutiny of Russian activities, including Russia's covert influence efforts. Um, the president-elect indicated during the campaign that he didn't necessarily agree with the intelligence community conclusion that Russia had intentionally interfered um, with some cyber shenanigans in, in the politics of this country, including trying to influence the election. Um, talk a little bit about how important... Uh, the whole cyber effort is going to be for the new president and in particular how that affects the relationship that he has said he would like to build with russia
1: yeah well on cyber writ large russia is a problem but remember this is a technique that russia has used um, forever Uh, 1970s they were very good at it matter of fact there's a great book called uh, uh, the world was going our way. It was by a former KGB officer and if you' it's pretty thick, take you a while to get through it but it 's actually really good reading on how they used covert influence operations, covert information uh, uh, and, and counter information dissemination, how they bribed uh, uh, reporters. so they were doing the same thing around elections. They were trying to disrupt elections they but they didn't care who won necessarily well, in some cases they did um, but they were they cared about having people not believe in the in the full faith and credit of that election, that it, my vote actually meant what, what it said when I went in. And so that was what, the Russians have been doing this for a long time, so some notion that this is a new event. It's not a new event except now, think about it, they can conduct the same kind of operation sitting in Moscow or Belarus uh, or fill in the blank, or, uh, or at a beach resort in Crimea. All right, there's the intel folks right over there, I <laughs> got it, just, just checking to check see where you were. The, uh, if you think about how aggressive they can be, it's, it's pretty amazing. And the fact that they were engaged in activity and weren't necessarily all that concerned that their signatures, their tradecraft was not great, that they were, you could see their signatures told you that they kind of knew that they were trying to cause trouble somewhere in the world. And all they had to do was is, is produce doubt. That's really, I think, what that campaign which is my, my theory that that campaign was all about. That, that is one set of problem in cyberspace. This next administration, I argue today, before their four years is up, will face a significant cyber event in the United States. It is just inevitable. We are just our noses above water, trying to keep up. Uh, and if you think about how amazing Iran has stepped up its game in engagement, uh, and they're kind of poking around at our financial institutions. Uh, it is just, it's is just—it's really staggering. This was the year of ransomware. I mean, if you think about it, the Presbyterian Hospital in Los Angeles earlier this year uh, had, a, had a ransomware event where they went in and basically shut down their ability to access records, uh, to find out billing, uh, billing cycles, also scheduling events for x-rays and, and lab, uh, you know, lab results. So they had to stop operations at this hospital. They couldn't conduct operations at this hospital. And so they contact the world's greatest law enforcement agency. I may be biased, the FBI of the United States. And you know what the greatest law enforcement agency says? Pay the ransom. Move out smartly. Now, you think about, if that's their answer, and that money, very clever, I think they had gotten it down to about $50,000, I think is the public number. Who who did it? I mean,
0: who was responsible Um, for doing This
1: looks like probably international organized crime, very sophisticated, um, likely Eastern bloc-oriented. And we're finding, by the way, that these Eastern bloc organized crime events... have some signatures that we would find with another intelligence services, and I don't want to mention any, Russia. Um, It's really concerning. So there's some kind of a weird sharing arrangement going on. To me, they're advancing, they're taking really good uh, tradecraft material and and tools and handing it off to organizations that they know are going to go do bad things with it that aren't necessarily related to the government, kind of. And so we're seeing this weird trend happen in cyberspace. And with the sheer volume and level of attacks, uh, I just got out of New York, we're, we're trying to align security in the digital <coughs> economy coming up. So we have folks sitting at really smart people in a room trying to figure out how do we align these interests so we're not at each other's throats on privacy versus protection. Uh, and to see CISOs who are part of the Financial Services Protection Network literally get beads of sweat when they talk about how they're just hanging on. And you take one bank out, like uh, Iran took out Saudi Aramco a few years ago, you take one bank out, some of these banks clear, one particular, $7 trillion a day in global transactions. What if that bank goes away? I'm not talking about shuts down for a few hours. I'm not talking about a DDoS attack that closes it down and makes them kind of figure out a way around it for a while and push back on the DDoS. I'm talking about a wiper virus gets in and we don't know who owes who, what kind of money. And we know that our adversaries are getting better uh, at this. And all of our nation state adversaries are getting better. I think that the uh, Navy War College put out that China has something on the order of 800,000 cyber warriors, right? Our big push when I was there was try to get 15,000 more. They have 800,000. Now they don't all have to be great. People say, oh, capabilities. Okay, 800,000 coming at you is pretty hard to beat. And so I think we're going to have this big problem, and the federal government's policy is not, we are not where we need to be. We had some good starts, cyber sharing, good start, how uh, the DHS is configured to help us stop these kind of things, good start, but if you talk to the industry folks, when they tell DHS, they go, yeah, we love it, and they come out of the room and go, this thing's not working. Right? Nobody wants to tell the regulator it ain't working. Well, guess what? Uh, I can tell you it ain't working. And we're going to have to have a dramatic change. Here's the good news I think this administration has a great opportunity to walk in uh, and start lashing up whole of government cyber relevance. So we have uh, to make sure that you get the best player, the value of the best players on the field, our NSA folks who go overseas and steal nasty things that our adversaries are doing, how we get that worked into a A uh, ecosystem of cyber sharing where companies can keep it off of your networks before it gets to you, uh, and and then how each of these governments works together. I'll guarantee you that the agriculture department is very different uh, at keeping them out than say the CIA, right? There's two very different capabilities. We need to make sure they have all of those same capabilities across the government and the policy when offensive cyber is good, when the government uh, says that they can name it's a nation-state who did it, attribution, right? We I think the cyber insurance market can fill help us fill the void of getting every company up to standard. Uh, if you're if you're, you're going to get this insurance, this is pretty boring stuff. I know I just can you tell I just went four, four hours of this yesterday. <laughs> I'm giving you my whole... <clears throat> I'm just kidding. So anyway, I won't go into too much more well, detail. Even, but It is a very serious problem that we're going to have to address, but it's it's criminal in nature, and it's nation-state in nature in a way that we've never seen before.
0: Well, take it, take it back to Russia, though. How do you... If you do what the president-elect has said he wants to do, which is to join, improve relations with Russia, um, have partnerships with Russia on a lot of issues... Can you do that at the same time that you're really taking a strong stand on cyber? Can you separate those things out?
1: I think you can. I, you know, listen, I, I think every president has tried it. George Bush tried it. Remember, he looked into the, to the eyes of Putin and, and saw his soul. Or I, I may have slaughtered that, but something like that. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. Um, Barack Obama tried it. Hillary Clinton tried it with the reset, Right. I have never met anybody, and do you really want somebody coming in saying we can never, ever, ever, this just can't be done? Probably not, right? This is the new chance, a new opportunity, a new approach, but we just have to have enough sense to know that you can't give them a lot of rope, right? I'm I'm all for talking with Putin. I'm not going to give him very much rope. Um, You can't give him much rope. And so if we can find ways where we can impact an area of the world for the better, why not? but we also have to understand that there is a constant undermining. We have more uh, FSB, SVR, GRU officers in the United States today, their intelligence apparatus, than we did at the height of the Cold War. A, it's easier to get here.
0: They're not here as exchange students. No, I, don't,
1: I think they're kind of interested in other things. And so you just have to understand the adversary of which you're dealing with. It doesn't mean you can't talk to your adversary. Uh, you can't give them things that you ought not to be given them, uh, but you can have a conversation. Remember, at the end of the day, you better have at least a conversation. They still have nuclear missiles pointed at the United States and the full capability to engage, launch, uh, and attack us with a, with a nuclear attack. Well, by the way, so does China. Right? So we, sometimes we forget about that. Uh, and so you have to have engagement at the right level. On those issues, you can engage on other issues. You just have to understand they're trying to beat you in cyber, they're trying to beat you in intelligence. And they're trying to try to beat you and influence around the world in ways that isn't good for the United States.
0: But if you look at areas where where at least Trump has outlined areas of cooperation, like Syria, um, what happens in Syria um, if if there is a fairly abrupt change in strategy? We've got opposition people there that the CIA trains, arms, supports. Um, They're about to get themselves kicked out of if they're lucky, Aleppo um, will be distributed in kind of clumps around the country. What, what happens uh, if there's a decision not to continue that program, or what are the equities that, that start to be considered?
1: I, I, I mean, I would be cautious of any statement you hear before there's a final decision. I, there's lots of information that his team will pour over before I think that decision is made. Um, and we're talking about the decision of, of freeing up the rebels, uh, well, I would argue walking away from them, which is not, not a very good idea. But you know that will be the president's decision if he feels there's a value proposition that's better than that. I, I, I certainly didn't see it, uh, but maybe somebody smarter than me can find that. I, I would argue um, that the, the attacks that you see on Aleppo today is this transition period of, of, of danger for every transition we've ever had in the history of this country Um, and watch out for North Korea they're not done yet either and so I think the Russians made a calculated decision this is a lame-duck president there's not much they're going to do to change the fight uh, the way they're fighting this fight uh, or not Uh, and the Russians decided to uh, ramp it up and the Iranians agreed so all of this bombing all of this attack all of these new fresh troops you see pouring into Aleppo from uh, the Assad regime uh, are all propped up by the Russian government and the Iranian government. And they figure there's nothing. And not they're no, Iranians, a lot of them. Well, yeah, there is and that. And Iraqis, yeah. Yeah, there is that. And so what they're doing is trying to take advantage of this period where no, nothing is going to change, and they know nothing is going to change, right? I mean, it was. if you imagine most of you are, are more aware than most sitting in the National Security Council of Vladimir Putin looking at this, what advice would you give them? Yeah, you'd say, "Go, let's do it, and let's do it now, and let's do as much damage as we can today, right? That's what you would tell them, right? Because you're interested in his outcome. I, you, go, you know that's happening, uh, and same with Iran. They, they f- feel, obviously, the same way. So the, as much distance as they can get beyond the borders of Aleppo, you watch. That's what they're gonna do. And they don't have the same calculus that we do. They don't care if they bomb a hospital, or civilians, or children. They don't care, right? And you know we, that's not who we are, and that's not the way we should fight. But you have to understand that they're using all of that moral lack of compass in this fight right now. Uh, and there's no way to push back, really. I mean, it would be great if both the president-elect and the president would sit in a room and, and figure out a way to push back today. Not gonna happen, likely. Uh, that would be a great outcome, probably not gonna happen. But if you don't see that happening, and President Obama doesn't have a lot of options left, I mean, he can engage higher, but you don't want to have a strategy that lasts till January 20th. That's dangerous, and it's not fair to the troops fighting the fight. Right? That's just not a good thing. So you're, there's going to be this lull. They, our adversaries know it, and they're taking full advantage of it.
0: Well, that we could apply that to lots of other places, and we haven't talked about really about around China, North Korea. I'd like to open the floor to questions, and hopefully some of you will bring that up. There are people with microphones who'll bring them to you. I'll call on you if you could. Um, Identify yourself and
2: then ask your question. Yes, ma'am. I'm Mitzi Worth. I'm with the Naval Postgraduate School. This was an incredibly informative session, so thank you both very much. I have two questions about regulations, um, and I don't know if the rules have changed, but it was my understanding that at least 40 years ago when new... You're losing 4,000 people that are walking out on... January 20th, these are the ones that require Senate confirmation. Can the new people come in and take over those jobs without Senate confirmation? And my other question turns out to be about your software. Uh, When the whole software thing was getting started, one of the things the Defense Department was told, you're not allowed to select a winner. And the consequence was all of the services chose different software systems, and then they discovered they couldn't talk to one another so from a regulation standpoint, how do you deal with both of these issues?
1: Yeah, um, you can't, the Senate is a little touchy about people who are not, have not gone through the confirmation process to go show up. So you, you can have these acting regimes. So you can take people who are in these agencies and move them up into acting positions. Yes, and you have the benefit of having these landing teams right there. Right, so you, so you'll get some sense of you'll. That's the way you you hope you get continuity in government in any administrational change. So I feel confident that I know that part is happening. You'll get some of these acting assignments. The people who, by the way, are nominated for those jobs will be then become a part of the transition, but they can't go to the you know. If, let's say the next Secretary of State, fill in the blank, your favorite candidate they would go down to the transition. The landing teams report, are down at the Secretary of State's office going through the changes, the planning, the questions, all of that, reporting back to the Secretary of State, who's likely in the building right around the corner. Here. And so that's the way that would work to get ready for, for that transition. So that part I feel pretty good about. And you're right on the cyber piece. I mean, I, I could go on forever. I mean, think about OPM. Had 20 million SF-86. Any, any SF-86 people in here? Get your letters. Got your letters? Yeah, got your letters. Letter saying basically that somebody ripped off your stuff. Um, Likely China. Uh, Matter of fact, I had to go the other day. I had to re-up my SF eighty-six. I hit my five-year window. Re-upping my S. I couldn't remember where I lived twenty-five years ago. I couldn't remember the address, so I called the Chinese embassy. (laughs) And I just tell you some of the best customer service I've ever had. this is a huge problem for us. We have these old legacy systems and every time you patch a legacy system, right, you build in a vulnerability. That's the problem. And so this is where we have to come in and have the courage to say, we're gonna, we're gonna, we have to do this all over again. Uh, and the way we would defend a network now with mobile devices, right, now the, big, the, the beat of sweat issue now is mobile devices. You have a mobile device that, that people are bringing into your networks, how do you map that? How do you push your perimeter out? Now they're saying the perimeter is dead. That's the kind of the new thing in, in cyberspeak, right? You have this, the, the complication of these issues is getting greater. The only way we're gonna do that is have a whole of government approach. We don't have that. Um, you know, people are building their own systems. The FBI decided to build their own system, 800 million bucks. Didn't work, not once, but twice. Um, so we, we just no longer are we, do we have the luxury to do that, knowing the sheer volume of things that are coming in at the federal government. We're just going to have to get a lot better about it, and we have to do it soon. So I'm hoping that you get this new change. It's a hard thing to do, and it's not sexy. Are you going to select
2: a winner? I mean, are you going to say this belongs to Amazon or this belongs to Microsoft or whatever?
1: They are doing some of that. So if you're talking about cloud stuff, Amazon is actually doing some of the cloud services work for the federal government. that's good, they, they are you, know, you can stress that system a lot and they do pretty well in the testing of it. So there's, all of that is starting to happen, it's just not as fast. And if you talk to someone from Silicon Valley, the first thing they tell you is, whatever you do, don't wanna do a contract with the federal government, right? This is the first problem we have to fix. What we need, we need the private sector engaged in helping the federal government solve this problem because they're always gonna be light years ahead and they are light years ahead. So that's the part I think the new administration can do, is try to bring in those people to help fix these systems. Even if people come in and go home, great, I'm for that. right? Uh, But if we don't do that, and all of these problems, like the DUIX, great idea, right? This is a new way to interject technology into the military because it takes so dang long. Uh, DARPA, uh, IARPA, all of these are code words for acquisition is broken. We have to go around it. And so, you know, as a member of Congress, you could spend 30 years trying to fix acquisition to fix that problem. We're not going to do it right away. We're going to have to have these private sector groups come in and help us fix the problem.
0: This gentleman back here.
1: Hi, thank you. Thank you for coming in, and this has been very
0: helpful. Um, my name is Doug Brooks. I'm with the International Stability Operations Association, also the Afghan-American Chamber of Commerce, and this entire day, has been very, very little discussion of Afghanistan, which is a bit uh, disturbing. One of the things that I think many people have brought up is a need to reassure allies, and uh, in this particular case, uh, Afghanistan needs to be reassured. They, they do not know what's going to happen with the new administration. I think some early word from the administration that there's going to be some sort of long-term continuity would be enormously helpful, uh, and hopefully a more robust policy. Is there any sort of sign that, that we may get some early statements along those lines?
1: Um. Don't know, again, I'm not not with the, the transition these days, so I'm going to be careful about it. But I, I do think you reach a very important point. I, I'll tell you about, very quickly, My one of my first visits to Afghanistan, um, I decide, I wanted to go to the children's hospital as a side from the other mission set that we had downtown. Um, we still didn't control that part. It was very early. I think we were the first congressional delegation there to see if we could help. Because if you remember, the Indian government had pulled out when the U.S. came in, and it— they basically took all of their medical stuff with them, left, uh, Afghan- left, left this particular children's hospital in a, in a dire strait. Long story short, a woman who had been trained in the United States as a doctor had basically been imprisoned in the back of her home for six years. She was never been able to leave her home. She was an orthopedic surgeon, never left her house in six years. She walked about 10 miles to go, she greeted me at this children's hospital. Uh, and I, I don't even want to describe the conditions of the hospital at that time. It was, it would break your heart when these are kids, two and three in, per bed. And so I'll never forget it. At the end of this, I asked this woman, I said, listen, you know, because we could still hear the shelling. They were just trying to push out that first mountain ridge when I was there. Uh, Does it bother you? Should we be here? Do you, is, this, is this a bad thing, a good thing? Uh, and I'll never forget it. She said, and grabbed my jacket. And she said, yesterday in that bed where there were three kids, I didn't have the right uh, medical devices, surgical supplies, anesthetic, uh, didn't have the right bandages, but I had to amputate the leg and arm of an, uh, I think it was a nine year old boy who had stepped on an old Soviet mine, whose parents put him in a wagon and over about 15 to 20 miles got him to this hospital, and I'm the only chance he had. If it weren't for the United States of America, we would have no chance at all. And I think this will be a stain on our national character if we walk away from the women that we asked to come out of the back of those homes to engage in the government of Afghanistan and life in Afghanistan. So I hope that America wakes up about what that challenge is. It's an easy place to forget. We shouldn't. It's wrong. We've made a commitment to half of the population there that we wouldn't let them get slaughtered. If you know, in the eastern provinces, they've closed 274 girls' schools. Right, shot them up, poisoned one whole school of the girls who are going to get an education All right this is this is a matter of American character, and I hope to God we have the courage to stand up and meet meet that challenge. I think this administration will get this piece right. Um, I know America is tired, but we forgot to tell them why we 're there, and the kind of people that we are helping bring stability to a place where stability means peace in the United States. Uh, I don't know if they're gonna have that conversation. You certainly might have some feeling of how maybe I have advocated, um, but we'll see what happens. I do think you're gonna see a different posture in Afghanistan, I just can't tell you what that might might be.
0: Yes, and then I'll come over here,
1: sorry. Hi, I'm Tim Johnson from McClatchy Newspapers. So much of the uh, infrastructure of the Internet is commercial and privately owned. Uh, President-elect Trump has said that he wants the Pentagon to take a greater role in protecting that. Are there legal ramifications? What needs to be changed legally to allow uh, the Pentagon to have a role in protecting commercial interests? Yeah, and so two things are going to happen. I don't know if you heard the question, but 85% of the networks in the United States are private sector networks. And you don't want the NSA, and contrary to popular belief, the NSA is not on those networks. Uh, And you really don't want the Defense Department trolling your private sector networks. That's a bad idea. There are ways, we think, uh, through use of sensors deployed downrange, this is more technical than you probably want to be. So what our goal here would be is, if you can see something bad coming by a (coughs) sensor that are either our Department of Defense or NSA or fill in the blank agency, you see something bad going by that sensor, external to your network. Wouldn't it be great if we could share that information in real time, mitigate that problem in real time? How, mu- how much damage could we, could we stop? Right? Huge. And so I do think that there are ways to do it. There, this is, we are still in a hangover from an NSA contractor who sold out his country, stole 1.7 million files. Uh, and is now in the loving arms of an FSB agent outside of Moscow, right? And we still think somehow that, that the, uh, the folks who are trying to protect us are bad people. We need to shake ourselves out of it. There is a legitimate privacy security debate that needs to happen, surely. And how you implement that is gonna be critically important. But what other security threat would we say, guess what, China's coming to get you. They're gonna launch everything they have. They have a weapon in their kit that will wipe out everything that your business does in a nanosecond. Good luck with that, right? We wouldn't do that on any other security thing we do in the world. If someone showed up on the, on the shore of a, and launched a conventional missile that hit a, a warehouse that was empty, nobody to kill, but ruined every Hollywood movie that was getting ready to get distributed for a particular motion picture, right? We would be outraged, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we say that's an act of war? Happened to Sony Pictures. what's the difference if it's electronic or it's conventional we just have to wake ourselves up to the notion that guess what we are under siege america is at war in cyberspace and we're not necessarily winning and so can we engage this greater capability at the perimeters to help stop bad things from happening and by the way this only way this is going to work is if the private sector joins in this fight right so every company has to get better every company is going to have to defend itself. Uh, just like you, we're, we're going to require you know you need to lock your door, and if you and you can swing it, put an alarm on your house, right? That's you got to do that. Uh, but you also have the police force. We need to have that kind of joint effort in trying to protect that eighty-five percent of our network because we are getting our clocks cleaned. Think of this: the um, <laughs> this interesting figure yesterday on the insurance piece of the cyber insurance. Um, oh, I, I, I'm going to get it wrong, so I won't tell you the, the lopsided nature of the payouts versus what the losses were, were unbelievable. I mean, this, we're just getting killed. And so we're going to create an insurance industry that's going to pay out a lot of money, which means everything you buy and pay for is going to get more expensive because we don't have the courage to put our best players to try to defend our networks. It makes no sense to me whatsoever.
0: But is this, is this stuff on the, the new administration's screen? I mean, you didn't hear... It was not something that was... doesn't really lend itself to a lot of did, did campaign see how many, discussion. Did you other see how than, many people
1: just fell asleep when I did my cyber uh, rant? Right about half. the I lost half. Yeah. the room. I mean, it is a hard thing. It's a hard thing to get people who are interested in it talking about it because it is. It gets complicated in a hurry, really in a hurry, and you do have legitimate debates on both sides. I don't mean to to minimize. I, I do think you can have protection of our economy uh, and prosperity of a, of a robust e economy, but you have to do it together. That's that's our new effort. Can do we you, do this together? But
0: do you think they they see this as an urgent problem? Do they see it as something that's going to hit them? Well, I mean, the the fact that
1: they were considering, uh, according to public reports, Mike Rogers, who Admiral Mike Rogers, and you cannot have enough Mike Rogers in national security, um, I I think that was a good sign. I think that was some recognition that we have a huge cyber threat breathing down our neck, and you need at least some senior level uh, person that understands what this threat is and how we're going to have to work to solve it. And this isn't easy, by the way. I don't mean to think it's an easy solution. I don't think it is. Uh, I think this is going to take some time, but I do think we've got to get started on it or we're going to, get, we're going to be behind it. But So I do think that yes, um, just by the fact that they were talking to Admiral Rogers, I thought that was a good sign. Who is the head of the NSA, by the
0: way?
2: Sir. I'm Ron Tiersky from Amherst College. Uh, I'd like to ask you to talk a little uh, about Donald Trump himself, your understanding of Donald Trump. Donald, in one particular sense, Donald Trump is a businessman. This could be good, this could be bad. Um, one thing he has said, when he said that one of his qualities, given that he's a businessman, is that he knows how to get things done. What do you think the effects will be, if any, of the fact that Donald Trump comes to the presidency, having had his whole career in, in the private sector, as a businessman, to make a joke, particularly in New York real estate, so to speak. Yeah.
1: Um, listen, I think this is, America selected Donald Trump for a reason, and I think it was that. that. Uh, probably a, host of, a whole host of other things. But he also talked about the economy in a way. I come from Michigan, uh, and we build cars. If you're, you know, if you're not from Michigan and work somewhere around a fat car factory in some way, shape, or form, uh, you probably haven't been around a long time. I've worked in a factory in Michigan. And so when you talk when he, he he talked about a message that people hadn't heard who are working in these factories and you saw the carrier issue today you can debate whether that was great or not but uh, it's saved a lot of people uh, their jobs i think that his focus on the economy is what attracted people to him and i think it's the kinds of thing that people hope that he can get done i think that's why you saw the market react the way that it did remember it was supposed to be got awful, you were gonna lose all of your 401k money if Donald Trump got elected, the world would come to an end, dogs would lay over dead in the streets. Uh, I mean, it was really quite, got quite ridiculous, I thought, at the end. And what the market reacted well is because he talked about a solid economic plan where most economists look at it and go, you know, that could, that's gonna spur growth. You have, uh, I think, both chambers here on the Hill that are saying, we think we can work with this economic plan and get a lot of this passed, so, I mean, my argument is we've tried lots of politicians. We haven't tried a business guy. Give the guy a chance. That's all I'm saying. I, you know, listen. Was he my first pick when I was uh, in the primaries? No. But my argument is, an American stood up and said, "We want to go in a different direction." I think that what he brings to it is that different direction. And if he can accomplish, think of this. He's talked about corporate tax reform. Obama talked about corporate tax reform for eight years. We could couldn't ever get it done. If he can get it done huge influx of jobs into the United States and capital and money. I mean, there's a huge growth potential. Um, if he does it, good on him. It's good for America. At the end of the day, we would all prosper. Every sec- sector of this society, every demographic of this society will benefit from a stronger economy. Uh, you know, I, I'm good on him. I say just let him, let him give it a whirl. And what I've seen so far is he's pretty business-like in his approach. Matter of fact, if you notice, his appointments are all a little bit of left of X here if you look back at the standard time frame for presidential selections of cabinet posts. And I just think that's because he gets in, he goes through the process, and he pulls the trigger and moves on to the next event. Uh, matter of fact, I'll, I'll, I, I've never met Donald Trump, by the way. Worked on his transition, but that was not part of the, the deal. I, I don't, what, one of the things that impressed me is, I don't want to hear about the transition, I want it done professionally, but I don't want to hear about it. Uh, we, we got that down. And the other one said, I'm gonna celebrate on election night exactly four hours, and then I'm gonna to get to work on the transition. This was before the election, right? And we all snickered and said, uh-huh, yeah. And I'm telling you, maybe it was six hours, but he got right back up the next morning and started focusing on the transition. I think he comes at the problem set very, very differently, and it could be refreshing. You know, we should all talk, Let's all come back together for a cocktail uh, 18 months from now, we'll, we'll share stories. <laughs>
0: Yes, in the, in the back, we'll start back and then go up the three of you. Yes, let him start.
1: Uh, hi, uh, my name is Maxim Kravchuk. I'm from embassy of Ukraine. I have a very short question. Congressman, uh, what advice would you give to new administration on how to deal with Russian rogue behavior in Ukraine, including Russian aggression in the eastern part of Ukraine and its uh, attempt illegal annexation of Crimea? Thank you. Thank you. And I've been to the Maidan, uh, been to Ukraine multiple times, worked with some of your burgeoning intelligence services. So my thoughts and prayers go to the people that you lost during that whole uh, and continue to lose, by the way, in Ukraine. I thought one of the most powerful speeches I heard uh, in my time in Congress outside of the membership uh, was your president when he came to the U.S. House floor and pleaded for support from the United States. I thought it was a very powerful, and if you haven't heard it, you ought to go back and read it It and and see it if you can. It's better if you hear it. Uh, Who invoked all of the the themes of our revolution in the the United States uh, and concluded very powerfully at the end that that you may say you want us to defend ourselves and to be free, uh, but you send us blankets and night vision goggles. Uh, We cannot be free. With blankets and night vision goggles, I thought it was a very powerful speech. Unfortunately, we sent a whole other batch of blankets and, uh, and night vision goggles. Apparently, they misheard him. Um, I, my argument would be: we need to let Ukraine defend itself, and we can help in certain uh, ways to do that. Uh, and this again, this is Mike Rogers talking. This is not the administration. That I have nothing to do with that. This is if I, somebody asked me what advice I would give, that's the advice I would give. Let's let Ukraine be able to defend themselves. Let's step up training operations. Let's do a joint training exercise with the Poles and the Ukraines in Poland with Ukrainian troops uh, as they train for, for uh, making their skill sets better. Uh, and, and again, giving the weapon systems they need to defend themselves against armor uh, and attack helicopters. I think if you did that, you know that, that, is, that is a calculus that Mr. Putin hasn't had to face. And I think if he faces that uh, prospect, that changes his calculus in Ukraine.
0: But uh, it, based on, on what, what Mr. Trump said during the campaign, that seems, it seems a low likelihood that that will happen. Uh, you I never mean, know. I mean, again,
1: I, I, I'm not speaking for them. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I, you just asked. By the way, I couldn't convince the Obama administration of this either. Mm. Um, I, I mean, not, uh, Mr. Trump may take a different direction as well. But I do think you have to change Putin's calculus, and we haven't done that yet. Uh, and I think the simplest way to do that is to do exactly that. I think the polls are ready to do it. Uh, they understand that an aggressive Russia uh, in Ukraine's not good for them. Uh, they worry about their security and safety as well. So I think, you know, and again, the weight of the information, it's, it's something, you know, campaign trail versus president, two very different roles. And my argument would be, let's see what happens. There's lots of advice, lots of counsel, lots of information to pour over. Let's see what conclusion. <laughs> they come to.
0: Let's take take these two questions. We've got about five more minutes, and just to see if we can get uh, several more in. Hi, my name is Chris Bing. I'm a cybersecurity reporter with FedScoop. Uh, Mike, two quick questions. So the first one being, you spoke about the imminence of a uh, significant cyber attack in the United States during President-elect Trump's administration. Can you speak a little bit about what the plans were, what some of the recommendations were in the transition team to deal with that? And then the second question is um, today the Presidential Commission on Cybersecurity released their recommendations, and I wanted to know if there was any talk or if you know of any plans to consider those recommendations in the new administration. Thank you. Yeah. Let's, let's, um, let's, take, let's take this gentleman's question, too. Yeah. And then we'll
1: answer all three. You're going to make me remember all I, three. I'm questions. writing them down. Thank you very much. Uh, Lauren Hershey. I'm on the advisory board here. I'm a semi retired attorney. Uh, with some experience in the Justice Department, the Antitrust Division, um, this is strictly avocational for me. Uh, it's, it's not meant to be a facetious question, but this institution, CSIS, did a study about six, seven, eight, nine years ago on uh, smart power. Uh, you've addressed mostly what I would call what they called hard power, and they talked about soft power. What, what do you see about public diplomacy and the soft power equation for the United States over the next four years in a Trump administration. Yeah, and so let me start with the the cyber question. I'm not uh, at liberty to discuss the the documents that were prepared and recommended to the Trump administration, so I can't talk to them about that. Um, And I don't know what the—I'm hoping that we at least take that document, the December 1st document. Um, It was a a kind of a mixed group of individuals trying to figure out how would we go a way forward. I think it's a great starting point i think there's some things they missed some things they got right so i hope that they take that and work from it um, and i think they can make a lot of progress if they do that but i don't know if they'll do that or not again cyber is not the most exciting political uh, issue that gets people fired up to run down to the polls and vote it just does not and so it's one of those non-sexy issues that is has to be done uh, and our adversaries are taking advantage in the fact that we can't quite seem to come together as a country to figure out what we want to how we want to approach this really hard problem uh, on the soft power, the only reason I talked about the other is because those are the questions are framed that way. We're not going to win any of these efforts without soft power. Uh, and I think you'll see a, uh, a pretty aggressive soft power approach with the President-elect Trump and all of the discussions and things that I've been through. Uh, and I always argue, you know, the, the first part of soft power is making your military uh, something that is feared. Uh, And so I liked his first step of saying I'm going to rebuild it. Remember our readiness. We have a huge readiness problem in our military today uh, Despite what some would say Small things like repair parts for airplanes, right? Those things matter when you're talking about a military that's going to engage in any sustained uh, or lengthy combat or even short-term combat That's far away huge problem for the United States. So they let that atrophy. I, I just saw that the defense budget came out with a a readiness budget, it wasn't a lot of money, I want to say it was $4 billion, something like that. Um, and that's basically to try to get aircraft back in the air, get our pilots trained up, all of those kinds of things. So that's the first part, because I always argue, no diplomat, diplomat ever wants to go into negotiation uh, without the 101st over one shoulder uh, and the 7th fleet over the other, right? That's always a quicker way to yes. And really, that's what we want. We want to put the, the United States in a position to go up and say, we're serious, We mean it, now let's talk, right? And if they believe that, it's always a better conversation. And I think that is exactly that peace through strength thing that you heard uh, uh, President-elect Trump talk about along the campaign trail, that's where he wants to get. But if you listen to him, he's talking about engaging our adversaries. He's talking politically and diplomatically engaging uh, our adversaries. And I think that, uh, and if you, Talk to a lot of our friends and allies around the, the, the world, they, were, they have been a little rattled by the United States lately. They're not sure who we are, where we're going. Not that they completely are there yet, but they like what they hear in the sense that we just want some certainty. Can we count on the United States when we need to count on the United States? Um, and if he reinstates that, I think that just completely ramps up our ability to have. I'm a huge believer in soft power, uh, USAID. Um, You know, it can be an important tool for us. Are we using it correctly? Uh, Is the State Department being used the way it should be? You know, there's a lot of hunkering down around the world where these folks have locked themselves into compounds. You know, my argument is get them out. Um, You know, I believe in expeditionary diplomacy. And I think from the comments that I've heard, so does President-elect Trump. You would need these folks out, you need them engaging in these communities. The trick behind that is can we show up and 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 flick you in the forehead if we have to. Don't want to. Hopefully we never have to. Uh, But we ought to at least have that that concern in the back of their mind in any negotiation. And I think that's what you're saying. He's laying that framework for a more robust, soft-power approach to diplomacy.